0: Last week, Pastor Danielle launched us into the Wisdom Series and taught through the story of Job, which is one of those wildly crazy, uh, perplexing, sometimes depressing uh, books that we have in our, in our scriptures. And she gave a thorough introduction as well as cover over the elements of the story. And so if you missed that, um, my encouragement is for you to, to listen to that because she went through all of the main components and things. What I'd like to do today in Job part two is hopefully dovetail and supplement some reflections about the lessons that we take from Job and to apply them hopefully to now what do we do and where do we go from here and what what really does this give us? Why is this text uh, in our scriptures and what does it mean? One of the most important things uh, that Daniel said last week, and it's been a theme of Spark ever since we've been around, is that questions are welcomed. But that's not actually fully, at the depth of it, the most honest truth about our community. Well, questions are not really welcomed, like we welcome questions. Questions are actually required. The process of journeying through life, when you are having to engage in existential, personal uh, debilitating kinds of issues such as suffering, loss, pain, all these kinds of things. It's not just that we welcome those questions. Those questions are actually required to, to bring our consciousness, our awareness of the things that we're struggling with, the awareness of the very events in our lives to a new level of understanding. And what I'm going to propose in short is that the entirety, uh, kind of the agenda of Job is one long required question that elevates our consciousness to a whole new way of thinking and understanding that then can liberate us to now act and behave in this world in a way that is fruitful and loving and good, um, even though the answer to the ultimate question at the very end is, I don't know. I'm going to suggest to you that the requirement of the question to inquire about why and the solution to that question being, I don't know, is actually quite liberating, and freeing, and I'd like to illustrate a little bit more why. We're in a series um, that we've called Wisdom Series. It comes from a description of most of the texts that we have in this particular portion. And um, when we think of wisdom, I usually think of people that look like this. These are in various characters, these are the people that you think are really wise, and you go to these people for deep, profound truths and understandings about the situation insight into my current circumstance and direction, guidance. Tell me the way that I should go. Here's what I need to know. So, of course, you got Obi-Wan uh, Kenobian and Gandalf and, and, of course, Mufasa, which is a fantastic I mean, the name just sounds wise, Mufasa. Oh, say it again, ooh, Mufasa. Um, what seems to happen in the texts that we have here regarding wisdom is that if we come to the text solely with this lens, that the way in which we get wisdom is to climb to the mountaintop and find that old sage that has all of the insights, the hidden secret insights, Um, if we come to the text like that, we're going to miss, actually, the much more pedestrian, the much more simple, the much more actually profound ways in which wisdom is being articulated in our text. And I think a lot of us come to the text with an expectation that when we get wisdom, we're going to get secret knowledge or secret insight. This is actually a struggle that people have been having for years and years and years and years. And what I'm going to suggest is that the biblical approach to wisdom actually says that that guy is wise too. That guy is wise too. And yes, even Pumbaa and Timon are also wise. We need to approach these texts with a greater understanding that wisdom does not come from the mountaintop. It actually comes from every day, every place, every person kind of locations. And the reason why the entire layout of Job, one of my proposals is going to be, is that you're going to see that kind of wisdom play out. Well, I have this kind of insight, and this is what I clearly know. And all throughout that time, as Danielle was pointing out last week, the questions or the the positing or the wisdom, the insights, the truths that these people think that they have don't actually turn out to be all that wise and all that true. And so wisdom is going to be found in a much more earthy kind of location. So wisdom isn't something that you go to the mountaintop or go to the gray-haired man or woman to find great wisdom. Wisdom is actually much more a way of thinking. It's an insight. It's it's available to every single one of us to be able to say, "There's an understanding of how this way wor- this way this world works, an understanding of how I think and how I process, and intelligence." In this particular definition, is not high IQ. That's a modern construction of intelligence. Intelligence is the ability to see what is already there and true. And to be able to accept it, acknowledge it, and then live your life out of that new insight and truth. Again, we're this is Silicon Valley, Stanford, Berkeley, very highly educated, very erudite kind of place. People with big vocabularies, pompous, arrogant people that use words like erudite. And so we sometimes think that wisdom has to be in that particular category. And I'm going to suggest that that's actually not how how it actually works in our biblical text. As I mentioned before, this has been something that people have been struggling with for a long time. The Egyptians had the ancient god Ma'at, which meant cosmic order, the base or the foundation of all things. And Ma'at literally means base, as in the base or the foundation of a building. It was a way of articulating, if you worshipped Ma'at, and if you were to give to her all of your worship, then you are to receive in response The most basic fundamental truths about this universe, and begin to live out of there. And obviously, as a god or a goddess, you are able to. She is able to hold that truth, and no one else has it. So you worship her in order to get it. The ancient Sumerians had Nabu, uh, the god of writing as well as prophecies, because of writing and prophecies, also wisdom. It's a very similar kind of pattern. This is the god who has all the wisdom. I'm just a lowly lowly peon. So I'm going to go worship the God to gain all this insight and wisdom. And of course, you have the ancient Greeks, which is probably mostly what we think about when we think about ancient wisdom, because we come from a Western, Hellenized, Greek-influenced kind of culture. And so you got Socrates and and Tithonese and uh, Chrysippos and Epicurus. Epicurus, of course, has a great website where you can get fantastic recipes and make wonderful dishes for you and your family. So extremely wise and extremely understanding in that particular sense. This idea that wisdom comes from the mountaintop, that wisdom comes from this kind of uh, stature of a person or these kinds of gods and goddesses is actually true in our particular day and age as well. And it's very, very popular to then elevate particular teachers, particular ideas, or people who have amazing insights about what this text is and what it says and to glob on to that particular wisdom. And then, you know, 1 Corinthians says this, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, I follow this person, I follow this person, I follow this person, because they are the ones who understand. They are the ones who know. And so we are actually not terribly so different from our ancient brothers and sisters, the heritage that we even uh, inherited. Uh, You know, we do very similar things. And we search out after that deep wisdom. And as a result of that searching, we have come up with a variety of principles and truths by which we operate that we see in the book of Job that Daniel talked about last week. I'd like to just articulate some of them. Number one, the law of causality. We have gone to the mountaintop. We have peered into the depths of this universe. And we realize that the law of causality works. If I do X, then Y will naturally follow. If I behave, if I obey, if I'm obedient, then clearly good things are going to happen. If I sin and fall away, then clearly bad things are going to happen. Daniel touched on this last week. So we've codified that in an assumption called the law of causality, and we assume that the world works this way, which is why we ask the question, why is this happening when bad things happen to good people? That, the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is predicated on this particular idea in a very similar strain of thought. The law of proportionality, that if I happen to do little sin, then I get little punishment. But if I do a big sin, then I must get big punishment. The law of destiny, that there is somehow a very clear will of God in my life. This is something that many of us have struggled with, specifically throughout college and trying to find yourself. And you're wondering, what is God's will for my life? And it's a very internalized, very personalized, very individualized perspective that there is a destiny that God has us on. And, And for some reason, if I somehow deviate from that destiny, then, then we dig into that area of, well, maybe the law of causality the law of proportionality is kicking in, and I didn't do everything that I was supposed to do, and I'm somehow in violation of God's principles and laws. The law uh, or the power and goodness of the divine, we immediately think that God is all good and all powerful. I mean, justice prayed it there too. I mean, it's all part of our ethos of thinking about how things are. And, of course, the entitlement of my obedience, which I see very frequently as well, which is to say that I'm clearly a good person. Job is, I mean, this is exactly the conversation that Satan has with God in the beginning. Job's clearly a righteous person. And so, therefore, therefore, as a result of Job's obedience, there is an entitled uh, response or reward that's supposed to come from that. And I would say that most of us have been saturated in any of these things or any combination of these things for a long time. And we then wonder why all this chaos and absurdity lives in this world. When things don't go according to plan, when tragedy strikes, when suffering happens, when the expectations are not met, the excuses that we tell or the reasons or the rationales that we give to that fall somewhere in some of these categories. I expected X. I did not get X. Therefore, there must be some reason or rationale, usually having to do something about my disobedience, my shame, or somebody else's. You see religious people popular on news programs talk about this with natural disasters. I'm sure there's some religious folks talking about the underwater volcano in Tonga right now as being somehow attributed to some sort of human sin. It's a natural impulse that we do as a result of this kind of structure that we have. There's a problem with this, of course, as many of you know. And one of the, uh, one of the ways in which this problem has been articulated has been uh, this thing called Diagoras' doubt. Diagoras was known as the Atheist of Milos. He was a philosopher and poet and artist in the 5th century BC. And you'll discover what he says here is actually very much exactly what we're still dealing with today. This was Diagoras's doubt, and this wonderful doodle is by Sky Gitani in his book, What's Wrong with Religion? See, people come to these conclusions because they see faithful people acting faithfully, getting good things, Then they see bad people acting unfaithfully or disobedient and getting bad things. And what Diagoras has pointed out is simply this. The reason why you tell that story is because you are dismissing the other people that don't fall into that same category. So let's say the faithful fall into a shipwreck. If they survive, then we call them the faithful. That's the story that we tell. But if they happen to die, we either ignore the story or we don't tell the story or we don't even know about the story. If the unfaithful die in a shipwreck, well, then clearly that makes a lot of sense. But if they happen to survive the shipwreck, then we don't actually attribute that to their unfaithfulness. Does this make sense? This is Diagoras in the fifth century. He pointed out what modern psychologists call the availability heuristic or confirmation bias. The reason why we can come to these conclusions about how faithfulness is supposed to work, how confirmation is supposed to work, about how these laws are supposed to work is because we have a tendency, fully and completely, to observe the things that make sense of the things that we believe and dismiss the evidence that does not fit into the category or to the belief set that we have. Are you tracking here? This is called confirmation bias. We know about this. And we do this spiritually too. And what I'm going to propose is that Job, in all 42 chapters of this brilliant poetic articulation, is going to take this very idea to task and say, that's absurd. And so very much around the same time as Diagoras is positing his idea, which, by the way, shows you that there are Christians, believers, not Christians, they weren't Christians in the 5th century BC, people who had this kind of idea, they were around even back then. And if Job is written around the same time, Job is entering into this conversation contemporaneously with all these other philosophers that are around. Some of you might be thinking just like John from Garfield, Al, trying to figure life out makes my head hurt. Try having nine of them to figure out, pals," says Garfield. Job is a hard book to wrestle with. And if you sit down and read through the brilliant poetry of it, it can even be harder because the articulation comes in metaphor and allegory and he references all sorts of elements of life that you would think seem to make sense to us. And including things like um, adoption and the, the way... The waves work, the way nature is supposed to work, the way human relations are supposed to work. And he just, in the poetry, the various back and forth, just takes all of it to task. And is essentially, through that entire agenda, shining light on all of our assumptions, beliefs, and all the spiritual logic and the expectations that we bring. To read Job is to have your eyes opened to what you think you believe about how the world works and to be shown that what you believe about how the world works is absolutely absurd which is why you don't see a lot of job verses on bumper stickers in fact the only quote that i remember from from job like growing up as a as a young christian was from like chapter 31 where job is claiming his innocence And he says, I've covenanted with my eyes not to look lustfully on a young woman. And that was like plastered all over our youth room. Like that seemed to be the clear message of Job, to be as pure as Job. And completely extracted out of the entirety of this kind of brilliant poetic articulation here. You, You don't quote Job. Job doesn't work on those bumper stickers. Job doesn't work as a life verse. Job doesn't work in those, and it's in our text, because every now and then, you need to recognize that there are absolutely inherent absurdities in life and in this story. It's okay, honestly. Let me, let me maybe do some backtracking. It's okay to believe that the world works a certain way. It really is. It's how you get through life. It's how you make sense of the chaos. It's how you can get up in the morning and believe that maybe if I do this good work, then something good will happen. It's okay to understand that these are truths by which we need to live. The reason why Job exists and why I really love soaking in the text is because you also need those moments where nothing makes sense and everything about what I thought is absolutely absurd. And that absurdity is going to be a tremendous gift. Because if you think the world works a certain way, if you think justice and righteousness and faithfulness and obedience work a certain way, and it doesn't work out for you, not all is lost. Because your text has told you that happens sometimes. And it's okay. Does it happen sometimes that you pray for a parking spot and a parking spot opens up? Yes. Yes, it happens. I used to do that all the time. 95% of the time, I got a parking spot exactly where I wanted. It worked. Prayer works. Amen. Hallelujah. But then there are those times where you're sitting by the hospital bed and the prayer doesn't work. And the thing that you thought was supposed to be true isn't true in the way that you thought it was true. And then the next step from that, if you hold to these laws as absolute what God intended, what are you left with? What we frequently call this crisis of faith. And what I'd like to suggest to you is that the absurdity that's found in the book of Job, the absurdity of its articulation of our life is actually a gift. That the ancients have understood, just like Diagoras, just like Job, and just like many other texts, actually, that there are times when the world just simply doesn't work that way, and I need a different articulation of wisdom. There's a couple things just to point out. In the story itself are some absurdities. Again, it's not only articulating absurdities, it's articulating absurdities by using absurd examples. All-powerful God, this is an all-powerful God who is completely powerless over human volition. And in many ways, doesn't quite have his head screwed on straight. You know, Daniel mentioned this last week. It's like, what kind of God would just simply acquiesce to the Satan, to the accuser? Earth is chaotic because the heavenlies are chaotic. Like this whole story, this prelude of this Satan and the, the divine beings having this conversation doesn't ever get mentioned again. And then as a result of That chaos that's happening up there, then chaos is happening down here. I love Job simply because of this main truth. There are inherent absurdities in the story. And I need that, honestly, because there are inherent absurdities in life. And I'm going to suggest to you that wisdom in this text is an expose of the absolute absurdity of life. This is, this is a crazy life sometimes. You know what? Sometimes it works out. That's wonderful. But then sometimes it doesn't. And if there's anything, and again, I'm dovetailing with what Daniel was talking about last week. If there's anything we want our community to know is that when it doesn't work out for you or when things don't follow the path that you thought it was going to follow, you're in good company and there's nothing wrong with you and you are very, very, very much a part of the same story. That's a very depressing way to, to end a message. So what I'd like to do is to go to the very end of Job, read the very last words. Because if this is true, if my thesis is true, or at least has some merit in the story, which I believe it does, then what follows, what, how the story ends, what Job does... After facing all of that, after putting his hand over his mouth, after recognizing that he wasn't there when God laid the foundations of the earth, after all of his friends have abandoned him, after all of that, once you get to the culmination of that, what do you do at the very end? What happens at the very end? And how shall we read it? Here's how it ends. And the Lord restored Job's fortune when he prayed for his companions. Excuse me? Think about that for a second. After his companions, his quote unquote friends, came and railed him, interrogated him, accused him of wrongdoing, what did he do? He prayed for them. This is also absurd, and it's beautiful. Somewhere in here, this ending, Job is leaning in to discovering life, purpose, meaning, direction, and The power of that only happens after he comes to accept the absurdity of everything that came before. Because now you can pray in full light of recognition of how this world does and doesn't work, how God does and doesn't work. And you do it because it's good and it's beautiful and it gives life. And the Lord increased twofold all that Job had and all his male and female kinfolk and all who had known him before came and broke bread with him in his house and grieved with him and comforted him for all the harm that the Lord had brought on him. Even after all of that, his friends came and sat with him, companionship, connection, community, not being alone." Again, after facing, and I forgot to put this in the slides, there's this point where Job hears God ear to ear and sees God face to face. That's a Hebraic idiom to say, I have now seen clearly and fully who this God is, how God works, and how this manifests. And again, predicated on the story, it's kind of like, I don't understand. I don't know, as Danielle mentioned last week. And yet, his kinfolk came, shared, broke bread, had dinner, ate a meal, grieved, was there for one another and each other. And each of them gave one casita. We don't know what a casita is. We think it's a coin worth of some sort of value and one golden ring. There's a gift to be given. There's still some some exchange of benevolence to be had. There's still generosity to do. And the Lord blessed Job's latter days more than his former days. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and 1,000 yokes of oxen, and 1,000 she-asses. And he had seven sons and three daughters. You know, The absurdity is, if you've lost everything, including your children, a wicked disease upon your body, absolute desperation, why why go on? And yet, something about the ending of the story, something about Job's spiritual resiliency and resolve is, yeah, I I can face that absurdity and recognize that there is still something good and beautiful and wonderful in having children and perpetuating life into seeing that life move forward, even in the face of that absurdity. And he, I love this. He called the name of the first one, the daughters, Dove, the name of the second, Cinnamon, and the name of the third, Horn of Eyeshade. <laughs> a bird, a spice, and a makeup. I mean, this is, this is completely absurd to me. Why would Job do this? Well, it says, and there were no women in the land so beautiful as Job's daughters. And again, we have a tendency to hypersexualize in our culture. This is just simply to say that there was loveliness, beauty, goodness in the world to be had, to be admired, to be taken, to be understood even after the absurdity. And here's one of the most amazing things. And their father, Job, gave them the daughters an estate among their brothers. Who's supposed to get the estate in a patriarchal culture? The sons. I mean, this little, this, just this little clip here is an incredible eye-opener to what Job is doing something happened to him after he faced the deepest darkest most tragic suffering point of his life to recognize that man there's there's still a redemption a movement a transformation to be had some value that I see in this life and that is going to even extend beyond the cultural expectations of my world so even the daughters now have an estate equal with the brothers So Job lived 140 years after this, and he uh, he saw his children and his children's children, four generations, and Job died, aged and sated in years. The reason why I think this is beautiful, if I can be as as articulate as I think I can be. Prior to the Job story, you do obedience, you do prayer, you do generosity, you you do goodness and kindness. Because you're predicated on this law of obedience, because of this law of recipro- reciprocity, because of the laws of how you think this world is supposed to work. I do these things because that's how I obey God. And in return, God does things for me. The absurdity or pointing out the absurdity of that logic is to liberate you from those expectations. And this is what is so beautiful. For Job, at the end of the story, he now does these things because they are intrinsically good. Not because of some sort of law. Not because of some sort of gain. Not because of some sort of reward that he gets at the end. Not because he believes that there is some sort of destiny to be had that he needs to follow. He does these things because to do those things is itself good. And beautiful. And wonderful. He knows the absurdity of it. Oh, I mean, believe me. Job knows that any day now it could be taken from him. Job of any person on this planet, understands just how quick life can turn to tragedy. And it is once you face that reality and face it, like face to face with God and recognize, yeah, that's sometimes how this world works. And to get up the next morning and to be generous and kind and to advance life and to be good in this world simply because it is good to do so. That's what's brilliant about this story in my humble opinion. Does this sound familiar? I think it does. Because if somebody was to point to our story and say there was somebody who did everything right, who did everything according to plan, it did everything according to the way they were supposed to be, you would think that that person would be exalted You would think that that person would get all of the divine benefits, all of the divine rewards. And yet, that's not what happened. There's an absurdity still to be had, even in the continuation of our story with Jesus. And what Jesus ultimately promised us, and we've talked about this multiple times, is not that you obey and not that you follow because you're going to get something good because heaven is coming and that's how you get there. You do it. Because now I have a sense of understanding. I have, I have a new insight. That there is an empire called Rome. There is a corrupt politician named Herod. There are amazingly corrupt religious leaders called Pharisees or Sadducees or the Sanhedrin. I can see all of that. I understand that sometimes this world doesn't work according to that way. And we do have a commission to fight for that justice. Note, this is not in contradiction to our commission to fight for that justice. It is to say that we live and act in contradiction to the expectations and laws that we have discerned to be absolutely true, like the law of reciprocity or reward or destiny, because sometimes it doesn't work that way. But now we do it because it is good, because there is life still to be had, even in the midst of absurdity. And in many ways, in many ways, by facing the absurdity of life, it makes all the good things that we do even more brilliant and beautiful. Because that's how that transformation can happen. So my friends, I propose to you, um, I propose to you that this world is ultimately absurd, or at least one aspect of understanding it through Job, is that this world is is chaotic and absurd. And I actually don't need to tell you that. Most of you understand it intrinsically through your life, through circumstances. I mean, just turn on the news and you see absurdity happen. All of those events, activities can lead us down a path of now like, well, if this world's absurd, why? Give me a good reason. Help me understand so that I can act good act well, act redemptively in this world, because I need that. I need that to do that. And what I would propose to you, my friends, is that Job is, in many ways, an expose of that absurdity to say, if we feel like acting well and right and true and good in this world only comes predicated on the rewards or the benefits that we get, then we may, have been, we may be missing something about how deep this wisdom goes. And so... In the midst of God giving and taking away, we still bless his name. In the midst of sometimes tragedy, we still are kind and generous. In the midst of things not working out, we still get up in the morning and we pursue life and love and connection. And that happens true as well when there's people in our lives, in this community, where they're having to deal with the absurdity of life, whether that be a disease or loss or tragedy. And just like at the very end of Job, we we sit, we hold hands, we comfort, we hear, we listen, we be with one another. Why? Because it is intrinsically good to do so. And I hope that we can embrace that as a profound wisdom that we get from this story. As we move into a time of communion, I hope that you feel and sense that the elements that we take and every time we do this, reminding ourselves of the longevity of this story and our heritage and our history and our, and our Savior, we do so once again. Not because it's the religious right thing to do, not because God won't strike us down if we don't, but because to participate in this ritual, to participate in this tradition, is itself intrinsically good. It reminds us, it centers us, it draws us close, it connects us, it reminds, uh, it reminds us of who we are in our relationship. And ultimately, it regrounds us once again. And that's why we do this every week. In love. Ultimately, in love. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Every single one of you, my friends, are welcome to this table. As we sing, come.